the 14th and 15th of Adar is Purim. Uh, so this year it comes on the 15th and 16th of March, uh, which equates to the month of Adar. And it begins on Friday evening, so it's Saturday and Sunday is when it happens to fall on the calendar. So uh, here's a little announcement about it ahead of time. It says, for Purim, we're planning a royal feast. I understand they're going to have royal colors and everything. Uh, it was about uh, the royal court in Esther's day. It was also about the Jewish people, and we are certainly are the spiritual Jews who are here to become kings and priests in the kingdom of God. So we are also about royalty and royalty to come. Princes and princesses in training, if you will, uh, to become queen of the universe. So I think a royal feast is a good way to put it. It says cost will be $15 per person and the time to be announced. on That will be on Friday evening. Uh, sundown will be somewhat later then. But it, it's a, it's not in contradiction to the Sabbath. I think we have to recognize the Sabbath is there, and it does not in that sense override it. But at the same time, for us to have a fine meal uh, and to fellowship together on Friday evening with the very deep meaning that it has for us as candidates for royalty in the kingdom of God uh, is, is a good thing. Now, they're planning a very uh, fine meal. I guess they haven't announced this, the uh, menu yet, although I've heard some about it. Uh, and the 15 might sound a little high uh, right off the bat for $15. On the other hand, uh, go to Applebee's or Red Robin or somewhere and see what a hamburger costs you these days. You know, uh, it's getting close to that ballpark, and by the time you leave the tip, it does cost you that much, especially if you have something to drink with it. <coughs> But this will be far, far better than anything you would even begin to experience there. Uh, I already know that. So, uh, save your nickels and dimes uh, for that. Uh, it says, please sign up in the back if you're planning to come so that we can make plans for the number that will be there, of course. Because uh, you have to, if you're going to prepare especially a very fine, sumptuous meal... Uh, it's a good idea to know how many are going to be there, whether it's going to be 30 or 40 or 179 or what, uh, so that you can plan accordingly. Because the food they are planning is, uh, some of it, quite expensive. Also, money is due by February 28th. Uh, this is already the 15th. We're already halfway, over halfway through February. So we can buy the food. And please remit that or give that to Charnel by the 28th, if you possibly can. And more information, of course, to come. I look forward to the Days of Purim every year because it has such meaning of deliverance and saving of their hides. Uh, and God orchestrated the, the thing from behind the scenes. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I'm going to start a new series of sermons today, 
However, I'm not going to put a name on it just yet. I want to introduce uh, some things first, uh, and then we'll get around to naming it a little later. So maybe we can go back and put the title on this part one <laughs> uh, down the road a little bit. I don't know whether I'll get it named today or not, but I, I may. Once upon a time, many fairy and fantasy stories begin with those words. We have Aesop's fables. We have Grimm's fairy tales. I find it interesting that someone who compiled a book of fairy tales would be named Grimm. <laughs> but that is the case. Because fairy stories or fantasy stories begin like Camelot. The rain is controlled. Everything is in order. It's a fantasy world. Once upon a time, we were, we felt, secure, safe, taken care of in the womb of worldwide. We were warm and fuzzy. Everything was going well. We had good leadership that God had raised up and had developed. It had become a worldwide work. We understood a lot of good doctrine. We had learned about the Sabbath, the holy days, clean and unclean, and so many truths that became Bible evident as we studied through and learned. So things looked really good. We felt we understood where a place of safety was. Herbert Armstrong even went over there and visited it way back in the early 50s, I think I recall him making those that came out in the Plain Truth with articles about it, and him on a camel or a donkey, I forget which now, uh, riding through the rose-red city of Petra. And that was proclaimed as the coming place of safety, and that the tribulation would begin in 1972, and by 1975 Christ would be on the earth. And the millennium would be set up, and everything would be wonderful, and they lived happily ever after. Humans want security. They want to feel physically safe, that their bodies will not be damaged or killed. They will not be mugged, murdered. Nothing bad will happen to their bodies that they will be healthy and not sick, not have all kinds of maladies and diseases. We want, we need that kind of security in our own minds. We want to be emotionally secure and safe. We want in our relationships with our families, with our mates, with our children, with our empirical self, employees, cohorts, at work, at school, wherever we might be, 
We want to feel secure about those relationships. We want to feel loved. We want to love. We don't want emotional upset. We don't like anger and frustration, depression, and all those negative attitudes and feelings to our emotional makeup. We want to be happy, happy, joy, joy. We want every day to be a beautiful day. We want to feel good about ourselves. We'd like to feel good even about others. We want to feel secure and nothing that nothing will go wrong in our emotional and relationship world. We want to feel financially secure. In this country, it's 401ks and IRAs and savings accounts and portfolios in the stock market or whatever venue people might choose to try to increase, enhance, and protect their wealth. We want to have all kinds of material things because they make us feel good, they make us feel secure, they make us feel wealthy and that everything is abundant. In short, we like all kinds of, of uh, security. And any time we feel insecure about any of those or other issues, we begin to feel uncomfortable. We begin to be frustrated when things don't go the way we wish they were. So, in the church of God, we felt all was good, all was well in our church world. And suddenly, it seems, all that security was just washed away. Almost overnight, it seemed. Doubt, distrust, frustration began to appear. People began to leave. The leadership started going in a direction a lot of us could not fathom, understand, nor accept. We suddenly were in confusion, insecurity, hopelessness, and nerve-shattering chaos. That secure, warm, fuzzy world that we had entered, and even were willing to give up family members who were against this new thing that we had learned, even mates at times we had to give up in order to follow this church, these wonderful doctrines, this way of life, this security toward the kingdom of God. And we felt that our emotional, financial, physical, spiritual condition would be healed. And everything would be A-OK -okay in our world. And you know, indeed it was, it seemed, for a while, until suddenly large cracks appeared, and our once upon a time was shattered. Our fantasy, our magical church, what we had believed in, was simply gone. Disappearing before our very eyes. 
People had all kinds of different ways of dealing with that. Some threw up their hands and just departed. <clears throat> Others looked around trying to find some security in the chaos and formed all kinds of groups to try to retain or to recover the security that they had felt. You know, we feel harmed when a bad winter storm, storm comes through. We feel defiled if a robber breaks into our home and steals our things. We feel violated when our world is turned upside down. We are perplexed. We have a car accident. Maybe we're harmed physically. Our equipment, our car, certainly is damaged, sometimes completely demolished. And there are feelings that come with that that just shake your whole world up. People sometimes go through great trauma in their lives, and they say afterward, I never lived until that happened. Now I live again, and each day is precious to me. Cancer survivors sometimes say that. People who almost died in plane crashes say that. Now life is more precious. I never let a day go by that I am not aware that I could easily have died. So we find ourselves <clears throat> where our fantasy had a head-on collision with reality. The reality is like most fairy stories and fantasy worlds, the things are not always what they seem. And we can be secure in our own minds and emotions in a situation that is about to violently change and blindside us, and we don't know why, and it is very confusing to us. Now, some of you here and I have been involved with the truth of God, let's say, for many decades, most of our lives, a lot of us can say. And then we have a younger generation that does not have that in their memory bank. They don't know how things were. They may have even been born since Herbert Armstrong died in 1986. So they have no point of reference that some of us do. And what we see today in this chaos, if we think we who saw it all happen earlier think we have a problem, what about some of those who are trying to come into an area of confusion and frustration and scattering and dissolution of any peace, happiness, and security that once might have been. That's a difficult thing to grasp. And if this is the church of God, why is it like this today? Why? Has our fantasy world gone away? We thought we 
but God, that Herbert Armstrong had built something good. So why was it destroyed? We blamed Satan, some of us. We blamed each other, those Laodiceans, you know. We blamed the ministry. It seems most blamed everyone but ourselves as individuals. Now, we've been over this material many times over the last 16, 17 years. But I want to introduce a topic uh, by going back over our recent history. Because if we are to alleviate the confusion, if we are to resolve the issues, and to once again feel secure and strong and faithful have our doubts and our insecurities removed, our distrust removed, if ever again we're to feel secure, we must understand what happened, why it happened, who was involved, what part we perhaps individually played, and if we are new to the truth, how could something that good be gone, be almost destroyed? We thought it was good, didn't we? Didn't we? You bet we did. That's why we felt safe and secure. Now, I can show you many, many scriptures that show God destroyed Worldwide Church of God. I can show you why it was done. Now, I'm going to refer to a scripture that I think you all know backward and forward by now, that is the key to begin to unravel this mystery of what happened in our fantasy world. And that is Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 23. It is the main key, I think the biggest key, to understanding <coughs> all the prophecies for the end time. Here he puts together, with the church of the living God, the words Zion, the words Jerusalem, I'm going to go back and read that. Because I think it's significant, and it is important to review it. Now, for many of you, we've been here many times, but there are always people who have not heard the background so much who begin to listen in over the phone network or begin to get on the website and go through and it may be a while before they come across some of this. So I'd like to review it not only for our sakes, but for theirs as well. But he's reviewing here the problem with Esau, who became bitter and angry and frustrated at his brother, and never could seem to get over it. And we have a church today, divided, frustrated, angry, miserable, 
And all those negative emotions in our fantasy world that we tried to avoid and to have security have now overcome the church as a whole. So there are a lot of bitter, frustrated, angry people out there like Esau was. And Paul is warning the spiritual Jews, those who had come out, the Hebrews, into the church, not to be like that. Do not be bitter, do not be angry, do not be distrustful, do not feel violated. Why? You're not like those who came to Sinai and had the law laid down there by God and Moses. You have come to a different forum, a different place. Something very different than what there was at Sinai. Now remember he was writing to people who had grown up in the Jewish religion or Jewish faith, considering themselves blood Jews, if you will. But now they were come to a different entity. And he said, consider this. You're not before Sinai anymore. Let's see where he says they are come, verse 22. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Now, what city is that? Revelation 21. The heavenly Jerusalem is the city that we are coming before. That is the goal and the purpose. Not so much in that sense physical Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. The heaven of God. The city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. He spells it out. Physical Jerusalem has its importance, and it has its importance in prophecy. But the spiritual Jerusalem, and that which is to come at the beginning of the millennium, is far, far more important. If you don't understand it at the beginning of the millennium, instead of after the so-called great white throne judgment burning of the earth, then go to the series, How Exclusive is the Church? And you will learn a great deal there that we did not understand in times past. So we come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. With this entity Paul is describing, there are innumerable numbers of angels involved. This is no little thing. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Paul spoke of the firstborn of many brethren, speaking of Christ. Firstfruits, firstborn, and so on. Which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So he says, you are before the Father... The judge of all, you are among men of like mind, similar beliefs, and to Jesus, or the one we now call Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant and of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So what he is doing here is tying together a lot of loose ends. That what we are dealing with in the church of the firstborn is Zion, 
is Jerusalem. And when you go back into the Old Testament prophecies, and indeed the New Testament prophecies in Revelation and other places, Jerusalem and Zion are key words, code words, for the church. They are all lumped together right here. Said in the same breath, in the same sentence. So if we are to understand the prophecies of the end time, you have to know that when you find Zion and Jerusalem in the prophecies, they have a fulfillment within the church. They are talking about the church. Now, yes, they do talk about the physical people of Israel who are part of the Old Covenant and who are here today still. The ten lost tribes are not lost. They have been found. And they are in Western Europe and North America and Australia, New Zealand and South Africa and scattered about the world. And they are still living under the terms of the Old Covenant because they have not been offered the New Covenant yet. And we find that those nations, those twelve tribes, are quickly coming under judgment under the terms of the Old Covenant as espoused through Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the cursings. They were a physical covenant made with a physical people. And we see our nation now as the leader of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim, coming apart at the seams very, very rapidly. And the curses, the diseases, the horrible things that would occur are now epidemic in proportion in this country. Diabetes, heart disease, cancer, MS, ADD, ADHD. At least 10% of our young boys are on antidepressants and drugs to help control their moods. An innumerable amount of our adults are on mood-altering drugs of one kind or another to help them fight depression, insecurity, and find relief from emotional trauma. Is there a better answer than drugs? We're an addicted society, whether it be legal drugs or illegal drugs. That's just the way it is. And no apparent answer from a physical standpoint for this nation and its people. They do go off the drugs. Sometimes they go bananas. Bananas are a good thing. I don't know where we got that expression, but nuts then. Well, nuts are good too. Well, crazy. All right. And here we are. But he offered a new covenant to a few who would respond to the truth, the living waters of the doctrines of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. And they are a part of that heavenly Jerusalem and that heavenly Zion and those things that we have to look forward to. Isaiah even talks about us as being Zion. 
speaking of the church there toward, oh, it's in the late 50s or 60s, somewhere right in there. So if you're to understand the Old Testament prophecies, go back there and don't read them only in the light of physical Israel, but read them in the light of spiritual Israel, the church. And there you will find many, many prophecies that indicate that the church would be blown apart in this end time. Read the book of Lamentations. Read chapter 2, where it talks over and over again about how God did this. He said, I did this, over and over and over again. So what has happened is that God took a hand in that church, which we felt was good, was the only true church on earth that had, as far as we knew, all the answers. And yet God had a different view and opinion of it, apparently, than we did. Did he not? Now let's go back to Revelation 3. With the understanding here that Herbert Armstrong espoused to us, and perhaps knows the tale, he was right to some degree, where it talks about the Sardis Church, which was basically dead, but a few names remained. And he said that the Seventh-day Church of God that he got involved with in Oregon was uh, the Sardis era. And that he presided over a new era, the Philadelphia era, that was known for brotherly love, that had good qualities, that had doors open before it that could not be shut. And he said it had a little strength. It kept his word and it had not denied his name. So everything looks good, does it not? Within Worldwide Church of God, under that definition, if it was indeed Philadelphian and all those good qualities were there, then why would it come apart, dissolve, and fall into chaos and confusion? Now, nothing evil or detrimental or sinful is said about that particular era. However, just like the other six, it says, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit me with me in my throne, and there'll be pillars in the temple of God, in verse 12, and have the name of God and the name of the city of his God, New Jerusalem, placed upon them. Now, if Herbert Armstrong was indeed correct, and that church that we knew was Philadelphia, and there was nothing wrong with it, how could this have happened? Did something occur within that God disapproved? Do you think that it happened with no reason then? It was everything was good, everything was right, we had our ticket in hand, ready to jump the plane to Petra and we'd be safe. 
Everything was good. Everything secure. And our security was removed almost overnight like a raging flood coming down a desert canyon. Why would God even allow such a thing, much less engineer it and do it to us, if nothing was wrong? Something must have been wrong. Now, what did he advise that group, if that indeed was us? He said, hang on to that which you have. Did he not? You don't have much strength, but hang on. Maybe we began not to hang on tight. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with Christ? He hung on for dear life all night long and would not turn loose until blessed. And Christ finally had to touch his hip and put it out of joint to get Jacob to turn loose. And the story that is read is that he limped or was lame for the rest of his physical life as a result of that, that that mark was left upon him. Never got around quite the same after that. Were we letting something slip? Were we not holding fast because we had little strength? I think that was in here about holding fast, wasn't it? Yeah, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. So there is a warning there, that if you don't truly hang on tight, someone might come along and take your crown from you. That is implied within there, I think, very strongly. Were we beginning to be complacent, thinking we had it made, everything's good, we feel secure, everything is going to be all right, we thought, until it wasn't. And when it did occur, everybody began to point fingers, some even pointed them at God, your fault God, or Satan did it. Or those ministers we had did it. Or, as most said, it was those Laodiceans. Now, I'm not one of them. I'm a Philadelphian. But it's those Laodiceans that are the problem. So we got it all figured out and pigeonholed, did we not? And we found a group that considered themselves Philadelphian, if we possibly could. And we got in that... And we tried to be Philadelphian once again. We tried to rebuild, remanufacture, relive the security we had known in the past. But it truly was not to be, was it? There are still people floating in this organization out of this organization, 
into another organization, into another, yet another, and another, and another, all through the church. It's like musical chairs or revolving doors. None are really growing much, but those who went out the back door replaced by those who come in the front door. And it seems, like somebody said one time, there ain't no girl as ugly as the one you just dumped. And there ain't any one of them that is pretty as the one you just met. And so it is with the church groups. There's nothing uglier than the one you just got bitter and angry with. Nothing worse than that one. And there's nothing better than the one you just found for a little while. Until you find problems there, and then you're out the back door and on to the next. There's no real commitment. People float around here and there, back and forth. They don't know what to commit to. But wherever they go, we're okay. If they don't hear that, they move on much more quickly. Now, maybe that which might have been, I'll give it that, Philadelphia at one point, had an attitude adjustment that God did not appreciate. Let's go on down a little bit. Verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodicea, these things says the Amen. The amen, or amen, or the so be it, or however you want to say it. The one who has the authority to say, this is the way that it is. He is the only one who has that kind of authority. We can agree with something, and we can put our so be it on it. But he is the only one who truly knows everything about what is going on and can say that. He's the original. The faithful and true witness. Now, we have all kinds of witnesses to things on the earth. We ourselves are witnesses, perhaps, of what has occurred within the truth or the church of God. We have mixed feelings. We all have all kinds of different ways of looking at it, or how I see it, or the way I feel, or whatever words we might choose. But the only thing that really counts is how God sees it, how He feels, what His analysis is, because our own can be faulty can be wrong, can be upside down, can be without full understanding. A lot of times people see something happen and they don't really understand reality. You have a traffic accident, ten people see it, and you'll get ten different ideas of what happened and why. None of the witnesses will see it quite the same way it seems. And so it is with the church. But here is the faithful and true witness, the one who saw it all, who 
was involved with it, whose church it was. He is the chief cornerstone, the main guy. Now, what he says is important. Everybody hang their thoughts, emotions, attitudes, and ideas on the wall and listen to what the faithful and true witness has to say. Because human beings do not always perceive things the way they really are. Faithful and true witness, the beginner or beginning of the creation of God. He made all things, and without him was nothing made. He was the Word. You can read that first book of first chapter of John. You can read it from the beginning of Colossians and other places. <coughs> I know your works. Now this is what he has to say. I know. I'm not guessing here. I'm not insinuating. I'm not imputing motives. I know. So this is a true testimony. This is the truth, raw and right out there in your face, from the Creator Himself. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. If the town of Laodicea in Asia Minor that they say was there at the time in the seven church postal route, and it's very possible that it was, and Paul may very well have traversed the Mediterranean because there were many Israelites over there, even though the origin we had discovered was here. There were some cold springs near the town of Laodicea. And there were some hot springs not far away, at Hierapolis or somewhere like that, if I remember the name properly. And it may be with good reason that Christ used that particular analogy if he was referring to that particular town. They were in the middle. They were not a cold spring. They were not a hot spring. They were warm. Now, the story goes in history that they were also a very wealthy town. They were in a fertile valley, and they had exceptional wool on their sheep. And this had made them quite wealthy. At that in 62 AD, in fact, there was an earthquake that destroyed the town. And the people said, we don't want help from the state, the feds, as we might put it today, from the government. But we will rebuild it ourselves. We are wealthy. We have everything we need. We are self-sufficient. Don't bother with us. We'll take care of this. Interesting, is it, as a historical note, of the attitude that might have been there. I know your works. You're there, but you're not on fire. I wish you were cold, and I could dump you 
or that you were hot so I could embrace you. But you're lukewarm and tepid. Not good on a spiritual level. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I, the faithful and true witness, the beginner of the creation, the founder of the church, the chief apostle, the deliverer, the redeemer, the Christ, the Savior, said to that church, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now I ask you, what church that you know of in recent history in the world has been scattered and spewed and thrown out and dissolved into chaos and confusion? The worldwide church of God. Now, if it indeed had been or still was Philadelphian, that would not have happened to it. Now, if something is scattered and spewed and destroyed, is it not time for those who have just been spewed to take cognizance, to take stock, and try to figure out why? Now, were we not all part of it? Were we not all part of the church that got blown apart? Well, yeah. So how can we, as pieces of spittle and scattering, look around at the other pieces of spittle and say, you are the Laodiceans, but I am still a Philadelphian. Are we thinking logically? Properly analytically? Are we coming to the correct conclusions? That it's everybody's fault but mine or ours if we're in a group of people. Another church, if you will. Can any one of those groups, including this one, say we were not spewed, scattered? United, global, living. Philadelphia, restored, to name some of the bigger ones. Did not come out in whole sections, did they? They came out of the church as it came apart as individuals, or maybe small groups of people who kind of stuck together in a local congregation when the congregation blew apart. And those, all of them, were then formed from all the little pieces of spittle. The particles of vomit, the carrots and corn, if you will in the bile of Christ's indigestion. And they became entities then, did they not? And organized themselves and called themselves again Philadelphia. 
Did we stumble over the truth, pick ourselves up, and go about our merry way and forget what we were and what just happened to us? And blame it on someone else. Let's notice here what he has to say in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. What does a member of the church of God, who considered himself a Philadelphian in the Armstrong era, say about himself, us about ourselves, or we as church members about the church. How did we start this sermon? A fantasy, a fairy story, of our own imagination that everything was A-OK. We had everything we needed. We had the right doctrine. We had the right leadership. We had the right goals and purposes. Our ticket in the Petra and the kingdom of God was punched. Everything was okay. We're Philadelphian. It says nothing bad about us in there. Isn't that what he's saying about Laodicea? That you were self-deceived? that you don't know what you're talking about, that your view of yourself is upside down and completely wrong. He says of people that he would spew that that was the case. Because you said, I am a Philadelphian, we have the key of David, and he opens the doors and no man can shut them. We're going into the kingdom of God and everything is going to be A-OK. That was our attitude. The shoe fits, wear it. That's the way we were, brethren. Self-satisfied, self-righteous, believing we were OK. I am rich and increased with spiritual goods. I have need really of nothing. We thought the church had it all. In fact, we even talked about all the truths that had been restored. That Herbert Armstrong had restored, what was it, 18, everybody says, 18 truths. And that's all there was. And that he was Elijah to come and restore all things. And then the end would come. But he came, and he restored a certain amount of truth, and he died, and we're over a quarter of a century down the road, and the end has not come. And he did not restore all things by any means. We're learning all kinds of things today, are we not? about history, about geography, about the things of the past, 
that had been lost, that he never found, never understood. Some doctrinal issues that we had wrong. There's a lot he didn't restore. He was not the Elijah to come. Now, he may have been a minor type of that because he did restore a lot, but he wasn't the final one. But we had that attitude. Now, here is the kicker. Here is the problem. We thought everything was okay. We could be warm and fuzzy and secure emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, in every way. And know not, middle of verse 17, that you are, you are, statement of fact, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, how is it that people can be so self-deceived that in their assessment, in their best opinion, their best analysis, that they are okay, everything's good, we have everything we need, we're going into the kingdom of God, and that is their honest, best self-analysis. They really think that. There are many, many people who are still hanging on to the truth, let's say, today who still retain that attitude in their organization. We're the Philadelphians. Everybody else is the problem. So Christ is saying, however, that what you think about yourself, if it is good, if it is truly within the confines of Philadelphia, as you would deem it, then you are totally self-deluded. Deceived to the core. And your view of yourself and your group is not the same as Christ's view of you and of your group. Because it was part of the spewing. You see, if you were part of what was spewed out, and the whole church was, then you cannot cling to the idea that everything about you is okay. Can you? Because you were part of the process. So it's self-delusion. It is self-righteousness. The faithful and true witness said that any who thought or think here in this end time, the last era of the church as we have known it. Now there is a sequel to the story which we'll get to. But we have to first admit where we are and why we have the problems we do if we ever have any hope of it changing and having security and happiness and joy again. If you never figure out what the problem is, you're never going to fix it. That's what every psychologist, every TV program, every self-help book is all about. 
My name is Bill. I am an alcoholic. Doesn't matter whether it's fat or booze or drugs or cigarettes or whatever the problem might be. Pedophilia, you name it. If you don't admit you got the problem, you'll never fix it. Now, is it being fixed? All these organizations out there, the so-called Church of God today, are claiming they are the answer to the problem. They take pretentious names. We are the living Church of God. That is an implication that the rest of them are dead. The Bible even talks about one and says it would take the name that was living, but they are indeed dead. I don't know whether it's referring to them or not, but scary at the least. You talk about one that's the restored Church of God. We restored what was, but got spewed. Okay. We have one that says, we are the Philadelphia Church of God. Right here in our title. The rest of you are not. See, the implication is generally there. We are the truth, you are not. Come with us or go to hell. No, they don't put it quite like that. But you might as well. Now, I was aware of some of those things when I began this, I didn't really begin this group, but when this group started. I was going to the place that I felt God was to keep the feet, Zion, right here in our neighborhood. People I didn't know, for the most part, began to contact me and say, I don't know how they got my name, how they knew what was going on, most of them. But there they were. They showed up. Said, we want you to pastor us. We had a meeting there at that first feast in 2000. They said, we want you to be our pastor. That's what Ezekiel says. If the people of the land say, you know, they pick somebody to be their watchman. But in my mind, I did not want to start another church. I did not... And still do not, to this day, in that sense, consider this a church. That may be shocking to you. I felt the name it ought to have was a congregation of God. A group or a bunch of people who are seeking God. Someone prevailed upon me a few years later that the name church ought to be in there. And I, against, in a sense, my better judgment, said, all right, we'll call it a congregation of the church of God then, if that'll make you happier. But in my mind, I still do not feel that I want to dignify it quite that much. Because I feel that we are a bunch of people who got skewed, who ourselves had thought individually that we were okay, or had convinced ourselves at least of that, even though we may have known better deep inside. <laughs> and came together <clears throat> to try to survive and hopefully thrive. 
I know the name of the latter temple that is yet to come. It's written in Scripture. I'm not going to go there today, but it's there. And I did not want to take a name, per se. I just wanted to be referred to, and those who are with us, as a part of the Church of God. When you've just been spewed out, do you take a lofty title? We're the acid-ridden pieces of corn, Church of God. (laughs) Or whatever. Or do we desperately cling to the past, which has been destroyed, and try to rebuild it? It won't work. And there's a testimony of three or four hundred groups, including us out there, to prove that to be the case. If you think the scattering is done, you have another think coming. Read Zechariah 11 about three major big trees, oak, cedars, so on, that are going to come down. Read about the three shepherds cut off in one month. It isn't done yet. People are still quitting. People are still dying spiritually, in all the groups, including this one. Prophesied, part of the story. Part of the self-righteousness that God saw. The self-delusion of being A-OK that led to complacency and we are self-sufficient. Don't bother us. We're OK. We'll take care of this. Like it said historically about the town of Laodicea. We can handle it. No, we could not handle it. We didn't handle it. And we're spewed with everyone else. So let's just, can we, give up the idea that I'm a Philadelphian? If what happened to me was what would happen to Laodicea. You, you gotta, you gotta be real. Let's get real. If we were a part of the spewing, then we must not have been Philadelphian. We must have been Laodicean. Did we not have the attitude that we were spiritually rich and increased with goods and everything was fine? Yes, we did. Were we wrong? Obviously so. Do you think the majority of the groups that still remain of the church of God, if they heard this, would believe it? Not a chance. They're not about to give up their view that they are Philadelphians. Go away. You are beneath me. Or as Isaiah put it, um, holier than thou. We are holier than you. We're Philadelphians, and you're a Laodicea. They're not going to accept it. 
I'll tell you, the two witnesses are going to let them know how many people are going to believe them. Ten percent. Ninety percent will reject everything they have to say. There's nothing new under the sun. They stoned all the prophets of the past. First chapter of Zechariah says, don't be like them, don't stone the prophets. So you read them the story of Haggai and Zechariah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets, and they'll stone you for it. They still stone the prophets. Even the prophecies that God retained and put in the Bible, they're still stoning. Because if you understand Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, and go back and read those prophecies, they were written first and foremost for the church. Herbert Armstrong got that. He said from time to time, the Bible was written for the church, brethren. And he was right. The whole Bible was. We just went through the book of Deuteronomy, and we saw ourselves all the way through it, didn't we? There it was, laid out for us. Everywhere you go in this book, it's about the church, number one. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It's all about how the story winds up in the end. It's all coming together right now. And if you tell them that story, they will not believe it. They will reject you out of hand. This sermon would be very, very unpopular throughout the church today. Just another one of those Laodiceans spouting off about us good guys. True story. You don't see people flocking to our website to see you to hear all this, do you? Ain't going to happen. Can't be. Now he says, you're in for a rude awakening. You thought you were this, but I say, is the faithful and only true witness, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm telling you people, if you think you were okay spiritually, you were wrong and you are wretched and miserable and blind and naked on a spiritual level. Now, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Can we be honest and realistic about really what we were and are? If we're going to fix it, and some will, God admit it. Can't be in denial. Now, I think you here who've heard me for all these years railing about this, probably understand that, at least academically. I don't know that we've gotten it, brethren. Truly. We all understood what Herbert Armstrong was talking about, didn't we? 
two trees. Oh, I've heard that story. I know all about that. Don't tell us that again. Move on. There are these two trees. Some of you remember that. And slept through it over and over and over again. And he said, Brethren, sometimes I think half of you don't get it. And once in a while he'd get really frustrated and say, I don't think 90% of you get it. And now I've read the scriptures and I think he was right about the 90%. And even more, as of today, the 10% will wake up and get oil in their lamps. I don't think you and I get it. I don't have time today, but next time I'm going to go into some things that show about Laodicea, what some of their problems were. Now, what is his advice to us? All right, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a Laodicean. i got to get over it. i got to fix it. If God spewed me out, there was a reason for it. i got to fix it. I want to be in the kingdom of God. I don't want to be miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked spiritually. I want to be fully clothed. I want to be happy and secure and not miserable. I don't want to be poor and blind. I want to be able to see and I want to be spiritually prosperous. I want everything to be good. I want to feel secure again. And yet we find ourselves putting each other down, backbiting, gossiping, defaming character, angry, bitter, distrustful, suspicious, and on and on. Right here. How are we going to fix it? I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. When you find your delusions, self-righteousness stripped aside, and get honest and real, then go to Christ. You see, the church is already in the fire of spiritual tribulation. Scattering, destruction, chaos, spiritual diseases of all kinds that are causing people to give up and die spiritually, diseased spiritually, in the church of God. And still they're quitting. Still they're giving up. Or they're wandering in confusion. Or they go to groups who try to tell them they're A-OK and deep down inside they must know that something is still wrong because nothing has gotten fixed. They think it's fixed perhaps and they feel secure, but as I told you before, it isn't over yet. It's going to continue to scatter until a people begin to get real and truly seek God to buy of him counsel, fight in the fire, 
through all the trials, troubles, tribulations, and spiritual difficulties we are experiencing today. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12. First part. Brethren, Christ loves us. He loves you and me. How do I know that? Because we're being rebuked and chastened. That's how I know. Because he says the ones he loves, he's going to do that with. We're going through a fiery trial and the destruction of worldwide church of God. For our own good, because he loves us. And what does he expect as a response? Be zealous. Not lukewarm, not self-satisfied, not thinking you're okay, but somebody else is a problem, even within our own group. Like the husband said that time, sometimes Martha methinks the whole world has gone crazy except thee and me. And sometimes I wonder about thee. we wonder about each other? Do we express it behind each other's backs? Do we still have a problem? Yes, we do. And we need to understand it if we're going to fix it. So he says, be zealous and repent, each and every one of us. He loves us. That's why he scattered the church. He spewed it out in order to create zealous, committed, on fire, turned on people who are seeking God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. That is the response he wants. Be zealous. Be zealous. Be unbalanced. Go for it. You're right after all. Not complacent. Not settle down even right here. Thinking everything's okay because it's not. And we need to fix it. Be zealous and repent. I stand at the door and knock. Anybody got ears to hear, eyes to see? If anybody hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I can read you all kinds of prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, which say that in a slightly different way. When you turn to me with all your heart, I will turn to you. To him that overcomes, doesn't give up, doesn't quit, doesn't become, stay spiritually sick, but to him that overcomes, comes out of denial, tackles the situation, does something about it. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. That's the bride of Christ, ruling from his throne. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
being Laodicean, being spewed, is not the end of the world, my brothers and sisters. It is a new beginning. It is an acceptance of past failure, of lessons learned, of being tried in the fire of difficulty, trials, troubles, and tribulation, and turning to God with all zealousness, wholeheartedly, and we will sit with Christ on his throne. I'm going to entitle this No, I'm not. I'm going to wait. A few more things I want to say first. But let's get real, okay? I think this is going to be important to us, this series, because it's going to examine a lot of scriptures that we need to think about very deeply and consider. Because we're it. You know, when old Bill finally said, yeah, my name is Bill, I'm an alcoholic. It wasn't a pretty day for it. It was tough to admit. <clears throat> but let's admit it. Let's admit we weren't what we're supposed to be. And let's not get discouraged and frustrated and give up. <clears throat> let's do something about it and sit with Christ in his throne. <clears throat>